And now, The Mentors Radio, one of the most popular and unique shows on the air today. Here each week, remarkable CEOs and leaders, including hosts Tom Laurie and Dan Hesse, and their guests will mentor you, challenging your thinking about life and work. Sought after for their ethical leadership and advice, and for helping others succeed throughout their careers, now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success, and personal fulfillment in life, at work, and in business. Learn more and check out the show notes at TheMentorsRadio.com. That's TheMentorsRadio.com. And now, here's your mentor. Welcome. I'm Dan Hesse, and I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest mentor is General Stan McChrystal, the former commander of U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan, the former leader of the Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, co-founder of the McChrystal Group, and author of four books, My Share of the Task, a memoir, Team of Teams, New Rules for Engagement in a Complex World, Leaders, Myth and Reality, and Risk, a User's Guide. A one-of-a-kind commander with a new perspective on organizational dynamics, General McChrystal is known for helping elite teams tap into their potential for their people to better compete in a complex and interconnected world. Few can speak about leadership, teamwork, technology, and international affairs with as much insight as he can. After retiring from the U.S. Army as a four-star general, he turned his expertise to the business world. He is the founder and CEO of the McChrystal Group, which helps Fortune 500 companies strike the right balance between hierarchical and decentralized team mindsets and structures. He and his firm focus on the power of network analysis and machine learning to strengthen how companies connect internally and externally. And General McChrystal offers a battle-tested system for detecting and responding to risk. Welcome, Stan. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's an honor. It's my privilege, and I really appreciated the way you signed your book to me, Team of Teams, which we'll be discussing, Son of 45. For our listeners, it's something, it's a bond that Stan and I share. Our fathers were classmates at West Point, class of 1945. When I was growing up as an Army brat, Stan, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to be. I thought maybe one day I'd want to be president. Obviously, that hasn't come to pass, but I don't know. I'm young enough. These days, I perhaps could be. But you you always knew you wanted to be a soldier. You wanted to follow in your father's footsteps. What was it about the military and the military life, which you got a chance to see a good deal of growing up as a brat, that attracted you? He was my father. My father was a soft-spoken man, not braggadocious at all, but he was a confident, charismatic guy, at least to his son. And I was the fourth of six kids. I remember when I was young, we didn't live uh, out on army bases. Once I had a memory, we moved to DC, but he'd come home in his uniform and then he went off to Vietnam and then he'd come back and then he went back to Vietnam for additional tours. Um, and the entire time he was just a figure that I admired the way he was around us and the way I thought he was in combat. And then the whole idea of a military life just seemed right for me, seemed comfortable. I think more than any of my siblings uh, from a young age, I just had no doubt that that's what I'd like to do. In business, I found that difficult times, times of crisis, help bring people together, teams closer, individuals closer. You know, I still have regular Zooms, you know, each quarter with a number of different teams that I worked with during my business career. I don't know what it says about 
my capability as a leader that we were always in trouble. But you actually had a chance to kind of be in a group in a difficult situation very early. West Point, I think you described it in your in one of your books as almost like a penal colony. I had a chance to you know go and speak at West Point and on leadership, and I was so impressed by the young men and women who were the cadets there. What does West Point teach you about leadership? It probably tries to teach you more than I learned about leadership, but I think it's the entirety of the experience because you have leadership courses, uh, very intentional experiences where they put you in the chain of command to serve in different roles. But it's all about leadership. You're in an uh, environment where they focus on discipline, they focus on standards, they focus on a certain level of sacrifice. They don't talk about it, but the reality was in the early 1970s, spending four years at West Point was a sacrifice, what you're missing, what you might have experienced at another college. Um, they started to teach you about your responsibility towards soldiers, those the people that you would lead and be responsible for and be responsible to. And so I think that much of the leadership that I left the academy with wasn't the obvious kinds of leadership. I couldn't stand like Robert E. Lee. I couldn't direct things like Douglas MacArthur. But I had this identity that I was someone who was to be honorable, someone who was to think about duty, just do it reflexively, someone who was to show as much courage as I was capable of, and someone who is responsible to take care of other people. And, you know, you do that imperfectly, but you do leave with that idea that that, that is uh, what you are supposed to embody. You mentioned, I think it was a major Barato who really saw something in you. You know, you were a bit of a troublemaker at West Point, but he saw a lot of potential in you. How important was that? jolt of confidence maybe that he gave you in terms of kind of you taking your performance as a cadet to the next level? Hugely important. I, I got to West Point knowing I wanted to be an army officer, but that was four years away. And I didn't take West Point seriously because I thought it was just sort of a stop on the highway to be an army officer. Well, West Point took it much more seriously than I did. And so particularly for my first two years, I got in a lot of trouble for my conduct, poor conduct. And I got into hot water with my academics, largely because I didn't study, not because I was stupid, but I didn't study. And so the first two years were this series of <laughs> difficult moments for me. And so I made it through the second year and I'm starting my what they call it, cower junior year. And that's the first time you're actually committed long-term to the Army. And I had my initial counseling with this major, a Major Barato, a new tactical officer for our company. And he was having a session with every cadet in the company just to get to know you. And so I go in and he he sits down across his, from his desk. He was a special forces officer. And he looked at me and he goes, I think that you are going to be a great Army officer. And you're going to be a really good cadet these next two years. <laughs> and I remember trying to kind of crane my neck to see if he's looking at the wrong file. And I, I then just asked him, I said, do you, 
do you know who you're talking to? I just got off my fourth major punishment for slug. I almost got thrown out for uh, having too many demerits in a year. And he says, no. He says, the things that you have not done well in don't, don't matter that much in the Army. And the things that I do see as strengths in your record to date are things I think are going to serve you real well. And I remember walking out of that meeting sort of on a cloud, um, not because I thought I had it made, but because here's a guy who saw it the way I wanted to see it at least, but he just showed that this in, tremendous amount of trust in me. And it was amazing the difference that that made over the next two years and then over the rest of my career. You know, it's a great example of what one person, what difference they can make in your life. Actually, Tim Brown, who is the White Heisman Trophy winner and you know Hall of Fame receiver, actually the only person Heisman Trophy winning receiver in the Hall of Fame, told a similar story when he got called in to see a new coach, Coach Holtz. And Brown wasn't even starting. And Holtz told him, I think you can be the best football player in America. And he had the kind of like, are you talking to me? And it just, it made all the difference. And I think you and he are two examples of people who have reached the pinnacle. And somebody like that played such a key role in it. So we'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, General Stan McChrystal. Go to our website, thementorsradio.com and click on list of shows to listen to past guests. This is Dan Hesse, and you are listening to The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with Team of Teams author, General Stan McChrystal. Stan, Team of Teams is really a great business study, and you kind of start with Frederick Taylor, kind of right at the beginning of the 20th century and his theory of scientific management and how that was really a breakthrough. It made companies much more productive and it helped the American machinery make the weapons we needed for the Second World War. Alfred Sloan's GM was another example. Can you describe though why it kind of went out of style and, and actually on the subject of GM, how some of that scientific management really got in the way and was part of the issue behind it? that ignition switch recall, which you described? Well, I think it's important we go back initially, though, and give Frederick Winslow Taylor his due, because he came of age second half of the 19th century and was fascinated by efficiency. And this is when the Industrial Revolution, because of advances in technology and energy, was really getting full steam. And what he found was, if you standardized expectations, if you standardize the way people did things, you saw this massive improvement in efficiency. And so what that led to is organizing for standardization, organizing for efficiency, and essentially then being focused on efficiency. And every one of us, Dan, you, me, and everyone we know has been affected by the, the pursuit of efficiency over time, because the capitalist system, of course, is built upon that idea. But it runs into limits at a point mm -hmm. because you start to treat people like automatons. You start to expect that everything fits into a neat box and it operates in a certain way. And that doesn't run into the reality of human beings and 
Uh, it also runs up against complex environments. And what I mean is, if you build a very efficient system that makes the most X with the least Y and therefore gives you the greatest profit, that's fine as long as the system, the conditions around you aren't constantly changing. But if the materials are changing, if the product you have to produce is changing, if the, the conditions in which you're functioning are constantly changing, then a very efficient static system becomes brittle. Think of a sailing ship. You're about to leave port and the sea is a certain way, the winds are a certain way, you know where you want to go. So you tie all the sails down, you set the rudder and you go. And that's good for about, usually about two minutes until there's a change in the winds and whatnot. And then you have to constantly adjust. Well, think of a very hyper-efficient system doesn't adjust easily. And so what Frederick Winslow Taylor and, and his proponents ran into is as you got into a more complex environment, it turned out to be less adaptable than it really needed to be. And so as we got into a more modern, as we found in, in recent years, everything gets faster and with more variables, suddenly those systems turn out to be uh, not fit for purpose. So you took inspiration as well from historical figures like Admiral Nelson uh, of the British Admiral what was it about him that inspired you? Well, who could not be inspired by a guy who at age 47 had already become the penultimate naval hero? He'd lost one eye and one arm in previous combat. And he takes the British Navy into a one-sided fight against a much larger uh, French and Spanish fleet. He's got 22 ships of the line. They've got 33. And he attacks them courageously. So who couldn't be at least motivated by that narrative? But the really interesting thing about him is he understood that the, the battle, if it went the way he wanted, would be chaos. And so he set up a plan of action to attack the French and Spanish fleet in two parallel lines and basically T-bone the Spanish and French fleet. And what that would do, it would create this melee of unorganized combat, which was antithetical to the way most military leaders in naval combat tried to fight. But he believed that if he freed his ship captains, he called them his entrepreneurs of battle, if he freed them into this free-flowing gunfight, that they would prove superior. And that's exactly what happened. He, he created the chaos he wanted. And in that chaos, they captured or destroyed 27 of the enemy's 33 ships without the loss of a single British ship. So those lessons, the ones that you, you described earlier with respect to Taylor and, and Nelson, uh, you went to Iraq and you faced an Al-Qaeda there in Iraq that kind of made traditional command and control warfare you know, less effective. Tell us about that. You remember we fought the first Gulf War in the spring of 1991 and Saddam Hussein put his army on a golf tee and we spent months getting ready and then we whacked it. And I think a lot of people thought that when we went in 2003, that it would be similar again. We would do this juggernaut invasion, capture Baghdad, uh, turn over the government of Saddam Hussein. And for the first part of the fight, that largely is how it played out. But once you got by that, once the government was overturned, 
we entered this chaotic environment, which resistance by the Iraqi people, this xenophobic response to having an occupying power, first created sort of disorganized violence. And then that violence was coalesced around an organization called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, a very well-organized but different terrorist structure. We suddenly found ourselves, we were no longer fighting a great white shark that we could identify, locate, and kill. We're fighting this school of piranha. And it required a completely different approach, a much more flexible, a much more decentralized approach, a much more organic, constant adaptation. And the U.S. Army was not set up for that. We weren't set up for it organizationally. And we, I would argue we weren't set up for it mentally. So I'm a huge believer in culture. And, you know, I believe that building a great culture is probably the most important role a leader, certainly a CEO, has. And you talk about teams and building teams and the culture of teams. And you focus a lot on two tenets, trust and shared purpose. You use the Navy SEALs as an example. Describe why these two tenets, trust and shared purpose, are so important. Uh, they're critical because you're really trying to reach a situation where the people rely on each other without doubt. And so what they're willing to do is throw something up in the air, knowing that their comrade will catch it if at all possible. And so you decrease transaction costs. You don't have to watch your back as someone else is watching your back. There are just mm -hmm. so many things that make the organization starting at small groups better. Now, the challenge with trust is it comes easily in small groups. It comes in a family. It comes in a very tight group because of constant interaction. You can constantly display your good intentions and your capabilities. It's hard to scale. Mm -hmm. And we do a lot of things to try to scale it with branding, with interaction. But the reality is once you scale it, it gets tough. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, General Stan McChrystal, discussing trust and shared purpose. You can listen to our show worldwide on iHeartRadio or on your favorite podcast platform like Apple or Spotify. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with Team of Teams author General Stan McChrystal. You tell us, Stan, that delegation is really important in terms of fighting, we'll call it this war of these fast-moving piranhas. You use the example of, you know, your team would go on a raid, they'd capture all of this material with great value from an intelligence perspective. They'd put it in a sack, they'd take it back uh, to the intel group, and by the time they got it and had a chance to analyze it, too much time had passed. It wasn't really valuable anymore. So... How did you deal with that? How did you fix that kind of situation? Yeah, you know, when you look at a system, and the system in this case was designed to apprehend people, learn from the intelligence that they might have telephones or documents or whatnot, and then inform the larger group so that you can use that knowledge to do subsequent operations. It has to happen pretty quickly or it's just mm -hmm. not relevant. And our system both procedurally and culturally was just too slow. We would bag this stuff up. We'd send it down to the base we had outside of uh, Baghdad International Airport. And then we didn't have enough translators to read it. 
So it would sit in this corner till uh, one or two translators could get to it after certain days. And of course, by then, most of the intelligence has been overcome by events. And then if we did get that information, we didn't have good systems then to pump that information out to the people who needed it, to the other intelligence agencies, to the operators. So in reality, operators going on a target had very little faith that anything they captured would ever go into the system and be useful. And so you have a breakdown in trust because the system doesn't work. Mm. And so what we needed to do was create, one, a system that was quicker, more efficient, and two, an absolute belief in it, because you need to rely on that belief. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with Team of Teens author, Stan McChrystal. So not to pick on any particular company, but you give an example of United Airlines and this issue of speed and viral and speed of information. And you gave the example of this fellow who had his guitar broken. Can you elaborate on what happened there? Sure. It's, it's really a case of finding that the environment around you is faster and more powerful than you think. Uh, United Airlines take a guy, takes a guy's guitar and as they're moving it, his baggage, they break it and it happens. And he complains about that and he wants to be compensated and they don't respond as quickly as uh, he thinks they should. So as being a musician, he does a song titled United Breaks Guitars which would be great if it was played to just his friends, but he puts it online and it goes viral. And in no time, this thing goes and it hits United Airlines stock price. It's just the extraordinary power of this tsunami-like flow of information. Some of it's emotional and sometimes it's incorrect. But the reality is if organizations are, are trying to respond they would have the way they would have 20 or 30 years ago, they just find themselves uh, unready for the real world. Another thing I, I found very interesting in your book, you describe why people need to see, everybody on the team needs to understand the big picture. Going back to Taylor, you, know, you showed how like all these people had jobs that went into manufacturing a pin. But if you asked anybody, they would have had no idea how you made a pin. They just knew that little piece of it. Why is it important that everybody on the team understand the whole picture, or the big picture? Because ultimately, everybody on the team is going to have to make some kind of decision, adaptation to conditions on the ground, what they're doing. There's a great story for when I was commanding in Afghanistan, a Marine Corps Lance Corporal, he's commanding a squad, and he's out in the western part of Afghanistan, and he runs upon a guy who's digging in the road, an Afghan. And they immediately think he's burying an improvised explosive device or a mine. And so they go to check it out and they find out that's not what he's doing. In fact, he's trying to get some irrigation ditch dug to support his land. Now, the Lance Corporal at first, he's very skeptical of this guy and they, they check him out. And then when he finds out, he makes a decision on the spot and he has the entire squad to help the Afghan do his digging. They stop what they're doing and they do it. And here's the reason. He understood that ultimately winning the war, it did mean stopping improvised explosive devices, but it really meant winning over the Afghan people. And understanding the bigger context of what we were trying to do in Afghanistan allowed him to step up and go, wait a minute, it wasn't about just that bomb, it was about this mission. 
When everybody understands the mission, they can use their judgment, their initiative, their values to support it. With respect to understanding the mission and the team, and you mentioned earlier that teams can get too large, they can't scale. And you talk about team of teams. How do you know when your team is getting too large? And then how do you create a team of teams? You know, how do they communicate with one another? Give us some tips. Well, first off, let me tell you, this is hard. But usually, you know, a team has a certain limit on its size. Some people say 75 people. Some people say 150 people. I would argue when you're in your organization, you walk the hallways and you see somebody and you don't know they're on your, your team or you don't know their name you're suddenly to the point where it's hard to view them as my team. You may think we all work for General Motors, but the reality is there's, there's a pretty narrow connection. So organizations naturally group into smaller groups, whether you're in human resources, finance, or your small group, you just naturally do. They're the people you know, the people you have lunch with, the people you talk with. And if you're given the opportunity, you'll, you'll buy colored t-shirts for your team and you'll identify with that. If you ask most soldiers in the army, they won't say I'm a soldier. They'll say I'm a tanker. I'm a special forces person. I'm a pilot because it's a smaller tribe. So when you get big, you've got to find a way to, to get the same kind of dynamics between all of these many small teams as you would between the individual members of a small team. And this is where it gets difficult because those small teams typically don't know each other. So you got to first create a common mission. Everybody has to know that they're playing for the score on the scoreboard, not the batting average of each team. The second is, I believe you have to have forced interaction. You have to have things that force people and those teams to have contact with each other. And this is where technology can help because video technology much more than just voice or email or previous things, allows you to get, at least from a digital sense, a feeling of presence, that those people become people. And then constant interaction as much as possible, not just a single iteration, that starts to create this sense of wider team of teams community. But it's something that I say requires continuous maintenance. It's not something you do once, have a good day. You got to force almost like a nuclear reaction. You got to get it in there and manage it so it produces power and not meltdown. You provide the example. I lived in the Netherlands for five years and I'd go walk the dikes and they really are an engineering marvel. But you described why they're not enough, that you actually think that resilience is more important than prediction in protecting against risk. Can you explain that? Absolutely. If, if you say, I'm going to do whatever I can to prevent myself from ever being hurt. Okay, that's great. But you're not going to be perfectly successful at that. You're going to get hurt. So really what comes back is, what kind of health am I in? Can my body respond? Do I have the immune system? Do I have the physical strength? Do I have all of those things, support systems around me? that make up for the fact that I'm going to fall down, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to get injured. And I think economies are like that. Armies are like that. Businesses are like that. And if you create this idea that 
We are invulnerable and therefore will never be hurt. The day you are, it's hard to recover. We'll be back in a few minutes with our guest mentor, General Stan McChrystal. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm talking with General Stan McChrystal about scaling organizations by creating a team of teams. So Stan, when it was time to go get bin Laden, you know, the team was on its way, the helicopter crashes, yet they still accomplished their mission. How were they able to do that? Well, first off, that organization had spent years learning to deal with the unexpected, Mm -hmm. so much so that the unexpected became expected, meaning you don't know what's going to go wrong, but you're absolutely confident that something's going to go wrong and it's going to do it at the worst possible time. Uh, Those were special experimental helicopters they'd never used before. So there was a little bit of concern from that standpoint. But the most important thing is you saw how the organization responded. They all knew that there were contingency plans. What happened? There was another MH-47 helicopter that was not far away that was able to come in. So it built it in. And and contingencies are, are critical. But the key thing is in the mind of the operators. It's the idea that we know that no matter what happens, we are adaptable. We are uh, very competent people. We will figure it out. And in really elite forces, that is one of the great differentiators. Once things start to go bad, start to go bad, people don't lose confidence, and they immediately start to move and make decisions. And that that showed up there in spades. You know, I had Andy Reid on as a guest, the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. And that's when the Chiefs are the most dangerous is when the pocket breaks down, when the play breaks apart, it's no longer the X's and O's. It's really who adapts faster, the offense or the defense. And that's part of Andy's genius, as well as his players. It's almost like Kelsey and Mahomes are are telepathic in a way. But the other thing that Andy said, and this gets back to your point about delegation, is occasionally they'll want the the team will want to run a play because Andy and his offensive coordinator call him and he says he lets them do that because when somebody is empowered to make a decision, I mean, they're going to give you everything they have when the decision comes down, but when they make it, they want to make dang sure it works. And that's, that's one thing a lot of people don't understand about delegation. The extra power that it brings is the people who make those decisions will do everything possible to, to make sure that that uh, that it's the right decision. Um, by the way, on the subject of uh, of delegations and, and teams working together, you know, when I was at AT&T, we went through these special development programs where we learned every part of the company and every part of the business so that we could see the big picture. But it wasn't so much for delegation as it was for, we'll call it the old command and control kind of decision-making but that we could make decisions quickly because quick decisions were important. And we were taught this is so that you could think in real time and have the confidence to use your gut to make snap decisions. So you'd be in engineering operations, sales, marketing, strategic planning, HR. And the other reason is you talk in your book about the butterfly effect. And so also you would know, because you had this massive corporation, if I decide to do this, 
what are the other effects throughout the corporation, the ripples that go through? If I put in a new rate plan, it means this for the engineers, this for the IT systems, this for training and sales, this for training and care, if I don't take something out, et cetera. In the military, do they train officers as part of your career path to be able to understand the ramifications of your decisions broadly and to even see a bigger picture? It's built into the officer professional development system and also for non-commissioned officers where you stair-step your way up and you take different kinds of jobs. Now, the challenge in a modern military is on the battlefield or in a larger fight, you've got so many different specialties involved that it's impossible for officers to have had much experience with all those. So we use staff colleges and whatnot to try to inform. And we also use uh, extensive planning and often wargaming before an operation. So you will go through this war game of the operation. And the biggest value is you hear what everybody else is doing. You know what your plan is. You're going to go this way and do X. But suddenly when you hear what other people are planning on doing, you see that interconnectedness. And you start to realize if this doesn't happen, we got a big problem. And so you, you get that wider view of what's happening and therefore the ability to adapt. This is Dan Hesse. You're listening to The Mentors Radio, and we are talking with Team of Teams author Stan McChrystal. So Stan, you've also said that the effective leader of today is different from that, call it heroic, charismatic kind of decision maker of, of the past. And even with all of this delegation and dispersed decision making, that leadership is more important today than it's ever been. Can you explain why? I think that's true. If we think back of uh, Wellington on the battlefield at Waterloo, about a mile width of his line, and he's sending out uh, messages from his uh, staff to different parts of the organization. He's pretty much micromanaging the maneuver of the fight. But his presence there, how he responded, affected not just the people who saw him up close, but soldiers who could see him from hundreds of yards away, the idea that they've got this iconic leader. Well, people still need the sense that someone is guiding the organization. And that someone has to be viewed not just as this brilliant man on a hill or woman on a hill, got to be viewed as someone who is competent and looking out for their welfare and able to support what they are doing. Because everybody wants to believe that if I'm doing my part and things go badly, that the rest of the organization is going to be marshaled to my support. And so that, that leadership becomes really a confidence builder for everyone involved. And you describe the role of this new leader. You use the analogy to a gardener. Uh, explain that too. I do. I used to consider leadership like a chess master where you micromanaged your 16 chess pieces against your opponent. And then I realized that in a modern environment, you don't do that because you have to give autonomy to the pieces because that's what your opponent's done. So the gardener analogy is a gardener isn't irrelevant, but a gardener doesn't grow anything because only plants can grow things. But a gardener creates the ground, creates the environment or the ecosystem. A gardener plants, waters, feeds, weeds. A gardener lets plants do effectively. That's what only plants can do. And so the gardener, it's a less egotistical 
a less heroic role, but I would argue it's no less important. It may be more important. And it's it has to be continuous. You can't give instructions and go to the golf course. You have to do what I call eyes-on, hands-off leadership, where you are marinating in the information, but only touching something when your intervention is needed and will be value-added. We'll be back in a few minutes talking with General Stan McChrystal about resilience. You can find all of our show notes and links at TheMentorsRadio.com. For those who listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or on one of the many podcast platforms that carry our show, if you enjoy these conversations, please give us a good review and tell a friend. This is Dan Hesse, and this is The Mentors Radio. And now... Back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. Welcome back. This is Dan Hesse, and I'm with General Stan McChrystal discussing the changing role of a leader. So we're going to switch gears a little bit here. Stan, how do you define success? I think it's accomplishing your mission. If it's organizational success, it is doing whatever you set out to do. If it is success of a family or whatever it is, holding that family together, being what you need to be. And if it's individual success, I think it's very self-defined because everybody has a different set of goals for themselves. How do you define happiness? Wow. I think it's feeling good about yourself. And what I mean about that is not just that I'm good, I'm whatever it is, rich or whatever it is I want to be. I think it's a sense of satisfaction with yourself that there's somebody we know we ought to be. And how close are we to being that? And if we're not, if we're very far off, I would argue it's tough to be truly happy. At the beginning of, of one of your books, I think it was, yeah, this one, my, my share of the task. You begin with, I think it's Christmas Eve, you're on helicopter visiting kind of location after location. Christmas Day will be the same where you're visiting troops who are spending yet, for many, another Christmas away from their families. Uh, and this is kind of a tradition, and we're coming up on the holiday period. Uh, so what are the holidays like for our deployed uh, men and women? It's funny, in the one hand, you think that they're very sad because they're away from their families, and they are, because people would like to be near families. But there is a, there's another side to it. You are doing something that you believe is important. You are doing it with people that you admire. You feel as though you are making a useful contribution and sacrifice. There's, I don't want to use it, say it's self-righteous, but you feel good about yourself because somebody had to be there and do this. And I have stood up and I have decided that it will be me. And so I think most service members actually feel pretty good about it. Um, again, there's the, the idea that a little pang that you won't be with the people you love, but if you believe you'll be with them in the future, I think most believe that it's a limited price to pay for taking their place in the line. So with the success that you've achieved in the military and since retiring, what mentors have been important in your life? 
It's people who are there for you a lot. I've got a group of friends and I don't have a huge number of friends. I don't think you can have a lot of real friends. I've got Lieutenant General John Vines, who mentored me through my career and still works with me now. And he was there when things were really good and he was there when things were, were not so good. My old Sergeant Major, Mike Hall, same way. Um, I asked him to come out of retirement and go to Afghanistan with me back on active duty and into combat. And he did that without hesitation. I've got another friend who was senior in the CIA and we text every day or so, even today, years later, there's just that sense that we're doing something different, but the bond we created in that moment never goes away. And that's sacred to me. It's, it's a, a pride that you have such friends and you just feel lucky to have people like that. Well, Stan, thanks for your service. We all appreciate it. And I truly wish your books were available to read when I was a CEO. I would have been a much better one. To our listeners, please go to TheMentorsRadio.com for show notes and other resources. You can also listen to us on major podcast platforms like Spotify, Google, and Apple, and on iHeartRadio worldwide. Join us next week for another edition of The Mentors Radio. Until then, this is Dan Hesse signing off. Remember, we're never too informed or experienced to stop learning. Thank you. It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business. To get more information about the program or a sponsor, to download a podcast of today's show, or to leave a question for our host, go to TheMentorsRadio.com. That's www.TheMentorsRadio.com. The preceding program, copyright CBJ, LLC. All rights reserved.